when God made it crystal clear, you do not eat from this one. And basically, they weren't just choosing to eat from the tree. They were choosing to disobey God. And things went south real quick following that. As you continue in the biblical account, we haven't talked about this, and we're not going to just because of time, but uh, it's in Adam and Eve's own family. One of the next things we read about in the biblical account is a murder takes place. One of their sons kills another son. And so it's the first example of that um, in, in the Bible. Uh, then you continue reading. You only turn a page or two. But it represents multiple generations that have passed. And you come upon what perhaps is one of the saddest passages in all of the Bible in what it says. It's in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, and it says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. I, that, that at least has to be competing for being one of the saddest passages in the Bible. You know, that, that God's heart was grieving because people's thoughts were just evil continuously. But there was a bright spot, even though the flood takes place right after this. There is a man, his name is Noah. And he's a bright, a bright spot in the historical account. Because he and his family, they are saved from the flood. This is what the scripture says about Noah. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And so, yeah, we see why Noah was saved from the flood. And you would hope that maybe that would spark something that would begin to spread and multiply and more and more people would, would be righteous and blameless and walking with God. But that's not what you end up seeing in the generations that follow. Uh, pride is filling people's hearts. Pride is ruling the day until that point in time comes that God decides to confuse people's speech. And at Babel, he causes them to uh, uh, speak in different languages. And so now they're not unified. Now people are, are breaking up into groups and, and um, finding their way to others that they can understand and then eventually moving to various regions in the world. And, and so that's kind of what has just taken place when we come to today's subject. It's a key moment in history. It's almost like God is going to start hatching a plan. It's like God's hatching a plan. But we know better than that because this is a plan that's already been hinted at. In the chapter that Kurt was talking about in Genesis chapter 3, we saw the first hint of this plan. It says, I will put enmity, this is what God said, to the serpent, the devil, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
This is the very first of what are referred to as messianic prophecies. This is the very first hint of the Messiah who's going to come. Now, there's hundreds of these that are found spread out throughout the Old Testament, but this was the very first one. God had a plan, and it was going to begin to unfold. And in order for that plan to unfold, God needed a people. He needed a special people, a people of his own choosing. And that's where a fellow by the name of Abraham comes into play. And this is today's topic. The first time we see Abraham, he's referred to as Abram. Later, God's going to change his name to Abraham. But this is what we read about him in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. To the land that I will show you, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham or Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot, which Lot was his nephew, Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Okay, so here we have Abraham. Abraham, he's 75 years old. His wife, that isn't referenced in that passage, but, uh, but it's, it's found in the, the text as it goes on. Her name is Sarai. Later, she'll be, her name will be changed to Sarah. She's a little bit younger than Abraham. She's 65 years old. So she's 65, he's 75, and they are childless. They don't have any kids. But yet the promise that is being made here, you look in the third line, says, I will make you into a great nation. Okay, well, right now, it's the family is just Abram and Sarah, and that's it. But God promises that he's going to make them into a great nation, and all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through him. Sometime later, God repeats this promise. It's not that much later, but we read about it in Genesis chapter 15. It's kind of a fuller version of the promise that he's making to Abram. It says this, now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. That is a reference when you're reading the context to a fellow by the name of Eliezer. Eliezer is like uh, one of uh, the servants, one of the employees, whatever, in, in Abraham's home. It's a guy that he really likes. And so apparently him and his wife, Abraham and his wife, they talk about it and they're kind of leaning toward, well, you know, God is wanting us to, to be multiplying and all. And we're just going to kind of say Eliezer is our boy, and we're going to, you know, so he's, he's kind of leaning that way in his thinking, and God, God is like, no, 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 this isn't going to be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside, and he said, look at the sky, and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That last sentence is a key sentence. Because you're going to read that sentence um, multiple times throughout the biblical account. 
As a matter of fact, even in the New Testament, you're going to read that very phrase being used. Abram, or it'll probably say Abraham, uh, believed God and um, God credited it to him as righteousness. You read about that in James chapter 2, you read about it in Galatians chapter 3, and also Romans chapter 4. You know, a direct quote of that statement. And God sealed the promise after saying, look at this guy, see all the stars up there, that's going to be like the number of your descendants, okay? And then God kind of sealed all of this with um, a covenant agreement. And that's what it says in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, how old was Abraham when um, a son, according to the promise, came? And I'm talking about Isaac. How old was he? He was 75 when the promise was initially made. But it wasn't until he was 100 years old. That's what the scripture says in Genesis chapter 21, verse 5. It says Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So it was 25 years later. God had made this promise. His descendants were going to outnumber the stars in the sky. But yet it was 25 years later that the first was born. And you talk about, you talk about patience. I mean, Abraham, you know, he kind of wanted to speed it up a couple of different times, and he tried this and he tried that, and it was like, no, that's not part of the plan that God had in mind. But this is the beginning of what we've come to refer to as the patriarchs. You have Abraham, his son Isaac, and then his son's son Jacob, and there you have uh, what are referred to as the patriarchs, the beginning of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people. We're reading about it right here in the text. There are multiple references. Probably the first one that comes up in the Bible that actually refers to them as being the chosen people, that was a phrase that Moses, several hundred years later, Moses used that phrase in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, when he said this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, Moses didn't want people to think that, well, God had chosen them because they were so impressive or they were so numerous. There were so many of them, you know, that God's like, hey, yeah, I want to capitalize on this. You know, Moses wants to make it very clear to them that, no, God didn't choose you because you were so impressive. Because right after he says that, and and man, what an upbeat passage here. You know, a people holy to the Lord. God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. You are his chosen or his treasured possession. It's all upbeat stuff. But look at the verses that immediately follow it. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. I mean, think about it. When did God choose them? When it was just Abraham, right? So that's a pretty small nation. (laughs) And that's when God had, had declared, I'm choosing you. You're the guy. So, so Moses is saying, he didn't choose you because you're more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. 
that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, Moses is saying all this um, after the great exodus out of Egypt. They had spent an extended long time, hundreds of years, as slaves in Egypt. And that's when, uh, in the context, Moses is saying all of this. And so Moses says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. God's chosen people. And it all started with Abraham. And so, you know, I think it would be in our best interest if we just kind of maybe put pause a little bit on this and take a closer look at Abraham. What was it about Abraham? Why did God choose Abraham, you know, to begin his people, his treasured people. What did God see in Abraham? Well, it's pretty clear. I looked at the verse and read it for you just a little bit ago. Um, What he saw in Abraham was faith. It was faith that caused Abraham to stand apart. That's the phrase that keeps coming up. He believed God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a phrase in the Old Testament. It's a phrase multiple times in the New Testament. This is why Abraham is frequently referred to as the father of the faith. His own life actually is a case study of living by faith. In the New Testament, there is a chapter that the entire chapter is devoted to to, um, talking about some of the great um, heroes of the faith, people back in the Old Testament era who lived notable lives of faith. And so there are dozens of people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And one of the verses that kind of sets the tone for the entire chapter, I sometimes refer to it as the Faith Hall of Fame, the, one of the verses that sets a tone for that whole chapter is verse 6. It says this, It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So there is just no way that you can please God without faith. That is what is being stated at the very front of the chapter. It's by faith. And then when you start reading through all of the individual examples that are given throughout the rest of the chapter, more space is devoted to Abraham than any other person. I mean, there's notable people like Moses and stuff included in that, but more verses are attached to telling Abraham's story. Let me show you a couple examples. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says, It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. Abraham packed up and he moved. He took Sarah and they moved. He even took his nephew and they moved even though he didn't know where he was going. It's stated right there. But when you read the Old Testament account, you see it in more detail back there. 
The thing is, uh, like a lot of Bible passages, we can kind of read it and follow it away and gather a little bit of factual information and just kind of move forward. But what I would encourage you to do is use your imagination a little bit and let this play out in your mind, especially the part that isn't recorded, but you know it had to happen, where Abraham was breaking the news to his wife that they were moving but he didn't have a clue where they were moving to. Can you imagine that? You husbands here in the room, you know, you go to your wife and say, "Uh, honey, you know what? Um, It'd be a good idea if you go ahead and start packing up. You know, I got to go out and take care of some of the sheep and stuff right now, but uh, you go ahead and start packing things up. You might want to pack it pretty tight because um, it could end up being a long journey. We're moving. And she's like, we're moving. Are we really? Is it that new subdivision on the east side? Oh, I love the looks of those houses. I would like to live in one of those. And Abraham's like, I don't think it's going to be over there. Yeah, it's most likely not there. But anyway, pack it up good, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, what would be the react? Maybe you shouldn't tell me what the reaction would be of your wife if you were trying to, to break that kind of news. But yet that's exactly what Abraham had to do is he had to break that news to her. And they moved, and they moved quite a distance. They moved over 1,000 miles. Quite an undertaking back in that day. When I was 18 years old, I spent a summer working for Beacon Van Lines. You know, and I, I really doubt that Abraham called Beacon Van Lines and said, you need to send a truck over with four strong guys to come and pack all this up. Meanwhile, my wife and I, we're going to go to the airport and just fly out. There. I don't think it worked that way. I don't think they jumped in a train or anything like that. Yeah, these were the old days. And so that would have been quite a journey. They lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Archaeologists have uncovered thousands of inscribed tablets that indicate that Ur of the Chaldees was an advanced city. It was the capital and the richest part of the Euphrates Valley. And and it was uh, extensive trade that went on there. And so where they had lived at was some of the best of the known places in the world at that time. And yet they were packing up and they were moving away from that. Abraham didn't have details. He did know what God wanted him to do, but he didn't have any of the details. But in Abraham's mind, that was enough. He knew what God wanted, so he was going to do it. He stepped out. That is an example of faith. A few verses later in Hebrews 11, we see another example. And this is probably the one that most of us, our minds go to when we think about Abraham. It says this, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, we looked at that in Genesis chapter 12 and then Genesis chapter 15. He was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Now, we all know Abraham didn't actually kill his son. But in his mind, this is what God was instructing him to do. And so Abraham took his son 
which uh, he and his son, they talk, the biblical account back in the Old Testament talks, shows that Abraham and Isaac were talking. So, so let's see, Isaac wasn't born for 25 years after the promise initially was made. Now he's carrying a conversation on with Isaac. So let's just guesstimate here. Let's say Isaac is 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. We don't know for sure. So that basically means from the time that the promise initially was given to Abraham to the time that he's actually taking Isaac to a spot to offer as a sacrifice, it's 40 years later. And you know this couldn't add up in Abraham's mind. They traveled a distance. It says they went to some of the mountains of Moriah, which off the top of your head, you may not know where that is. But uh, through a little more study, you would discover that is where Jerusalem is at. And so we, we see kind of the foreshadowing here, you know, of Jesus being crucified on a cross. And it very well could have been on one of the, the, the maybe even the very hill, the very mountain that... Uh, um, Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac on. But uh, God put a stop to it. But here, here they are. They pack up all the supplies that are necessary, and they go. They leave the servants at the base of the mountain, and then just Isaac and Abraham go up there. They prepare the altar and all this kind of stuff, and he ties up his son, and he is ready to offer him as a sacrifice. You know, um, there's no way that Abraham could have understood the details of exactly what was going on here. God had made a promise. His descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. And here it is 40 years later, and this is his descendant. This is it. It's Isaac. And now God's saying, offer him as a sacrifice. There's no way that Abraham could have really understood exactly how all this adds up. How can the promise and the command stand side by side. How? It seems like one would cancel out the other one. Yeah, he didn't understand the details, but he did know what God wanted him to do. And so he did it. He was ready to do the very thing that God had instructed him to do. Yeah, let, let me clarify a couple things here about faith. Because there are some misconceptions that, that float around are fairly common with people regarding faith and what faith is, what it consists of. First of all, faith is more than a view you hold. We need to understand this because this is kind of a common notion that people have that uh, um, as long as you believe in the existence of God and you believe that Jesus is the Son, then you have faith. As long as you agree to the existence of, of God being around. Well, if that were the case, and you need to think this through, if that were the case, then the demonic world would qualify for being saved, right? Because we read in passages like James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, you believe that there is one God. That's fine. The demons also believe that, and they tremble with fear. In other words, they don't struggle with doubts about it. You or I, we may at times experience some doubts. Well, the demons don't have any doubts. They tremble with fear over that. So just holding the view of the existence of, of, of God and his son Jesus, and, and that does not constitute what the Bible is talking about when it is referring to faith. 
Here's another one. You can, you can look at um, during Jesus' ministry, he ran into a guy who was demon-possessed in Luke chapter 4, and this is what it says. In the synagogue was a man possessed by a spirit, an evil demon. He shouted very loudly, Oh no, what do you want with us? Jesus from Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Was he right? Yeah, he was right. He was exactly right. But did that mean he had faith? No. It didn't mean that he had faith. I mean, that, that, that doesn't even make sense to say that. And so, so we, need, we need to kind of slow down a little bit and kind of clarify some things in our mind. That faith isn't just a view that you hold in regards to the existence of God, in regards to the fact that Jesus really was here on earth. They really did die on the cross. It's, it's, it's more than just a view you hold. In addition to that, faith is more than a feeling you feel. Again, somewhere along the line in our culture, we got to where we evaluate whether something is legitimate or not based on whether or not it moves us on an emotional level. If something moves us on an emotional level, then, oh, it must be valid. That's kind of the test we apply to it. But we got to be careful about that. Because if you bring that into your marriage, think about it for a moment. You bring that into your marriage, you know, when, when, when you get married and when you propose and you have the wedding day and all that kind of stuff, you know, when you hold each other's hands, it kind of sends goosebumps up your arms, right? You get those warm, fuzzy feelings. But what about 10 years later? What about 20 years later? What about 40 years later? Do you get those same goosebumps, those same warm fuzzies? All right, you don't have to answer that right now because you'll be in trouble if you do. But, um, but uh, uh, so does that mean that your marriage is a lie because you don't feel exactly the way that you did at one particular point in time? Is that basically the substance of what a marriage is made up of and based on? Our feelings. Absolutely not. That's ridiculous to think that, but yet a lot of people believe that, and it's no wonder the divorce rate is where it is in this country. Or you think about a relationship with God. You think about, you know, when, when you gave your life to Christ and, and you think about how emotional that was and you think about some of those high points in your life um, where you really felt his presence and you experienced joy and all this. Okay, but what happens when you go through an extended valley? a dry time in your life spiritually? What happens when you go through a, a, a point in time when you're really struggling and every time you pray, you feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and you feel like God is nowhere to be found? What's going to happen then? You're going to start questioning your salvation. You're going to start questioning whether or not God is really there for you. Maybe he's abandoned you. Maybe he's rejected you for something you've done or said or something along those lines. You see how dangerous that can be, basing everything on a feeling? Otherwise, if, if it is a feeling, then the temptation is always going to be to chase after emotional experiences to try to keep the feeling alive. 
And the problem with that is you're always going to have to go to new levels. Because after you do something enough times, whatever it is that you're doing, it's not going to have the same impact on you that it initially had. So now you're going to need to ratchet it up a little bit and do a little bit more. Go a little bit beyond whatever it was you were doing before. This is one of the reasons that from a spiritual perspective, people end up doing some really crazy things sometimes, handling rattlesnakes and stuff like that, working themselves up in a frenzy because they're chasing after an emotion. They're chasing after a feeling or holy laughter. If you remember when that came out a few years ago, certain groups were, were you know, claiming that and chasing after that, and probably some of them still are doing that. But that, that's part of the problem that this takes you into. Now, I'm not saying that emotion is a bad thing as far as our walk with the Lord is concerned, because I think there are verses like Romans 12 that says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. I think that there is a place for that. But that is not the foundation of what a relationship with God is based on. It's not based on how we feel. It's not based on just a view that we hold. What is faith? Well, the best place to go is to go back to the Word of God and let's go back to the Father of our faith and what it was that God saw in him. What did God see in him? God saw in Abraham that faith was taking God at his word and acting on it, even if he didn't understand the details. That's what faith is. So no wonder you start seeing verses in the Bible like James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. You see, it's, it's elevating the importance of, in our understanding of obedience. We need to be obedient to God. This is what he's wanting from us. Or you look at 1 John chapter 2. It says, we can be sure that we know that we know if we obey his commandments we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments if someone claims i know god but doesn't obey god's commandments that person is a liar and it's not living in the truth and, and the more you look, the more you see passages like this. One time Jesus was having a pretty busy day and someone said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. And Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and he said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's making it very clear that this is what, it is what it looks like to be family with me, is that you are obedient. Faith is more than a thought that you hold in your head. It's more than a feeling that you feel. And you see this in Abraham's life. You see it really clearly in Abraham's life. All right. Now I've got one more thing that I'm going to talk about before we kind of wrap this up. This morning, and this is a biggie, and I kind of made reference to it at the very beginning. As a Christian, I want you to understand you are among God's chosen people. This is a concept that is taught in the Bible that, for whatever reason, oftentimes gets overlooked, and people don't really shine 
any kind of a spotlight on this to draw attention to this. We normally think of God's chosen people as blood descendants of Abraham, people that from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith, the Jewish race, got Jewish blood in them. They are the chosen people. And we've looked at some of those passages of Scripture. But what I want you to see is what the Bible continues in teaching when it talks about this subject. Because when you get into the New Testament in books like Ephesians and Colossians, you keep reading references to a mystery, a mystery that is being revealed. And what, what is this mystery? Let me show you one of the passages. We're going to spend more time next Sunday in Galatians, but I just want to show you part of this one chapter. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. This quotes that statement that you find back in Genesis 15 that we looked at early in the message. It says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so Abraham becomes the father of the faith. All right, but now what I want you to see is I want you to see what immediately follows this because this is eye-opening. It says, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. See, Paul, as he's writing to these churches in Galatia, he's, he's saying that phrase way back in Genesis that says all nations will be blessed through you, that was including Gentiles. See, and that, that was unheard of, you know, to be saying something like that. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, I, I didn't create a, a slide for this, and I'm not really sure why, but I'm going to read, and this is on your outline though, I'm going to read the last four verses of that same chapter because it's all building up to a point, and the point is really driven home at the tail end of the chapter. Listen to this. I'm going to start with verse 26 of that same chapter. It says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, just another way of saying Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, and this is your memory verse today, this last verse of the chapter. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see what that's saying? It's saying that in Genesis chapter 15, when God instructed Abraham, come out of the tent, look up at the sky, see all those stars? That's the way your descendants are going to be. What Galatians chapter 3 is saying is that we represent some of those stars. We are of that number. People of faith, wait, I don't have any Jewish blood in me. That's just the point that's being made here in this chapter. And it's a key point. As a matter of fact, you think about one of the apostles that really had a problem with this whole idea of Gentiles. 
um, it was Peter. Remember when Peter, in the book of Acts, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you know, Peter was in, given a vision, and he was to go to uh, Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, okay? He wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile. And, uh, he, and God is basically telling Peter, you need to go to Cornelius' house. And Peter is kind of like, uh, no way, I'm not doing that. You know, God says, no, you are, you are going to do this. You're going to accept what I have accepted. And so Peter kind of reluctantly goes to Cornelius' house, and eventually, what does that encounter lead to? It leads to baptizing Cornelius and his whole household into Christ. Peter, you remember when he gave the good confession in Matthew 16? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, that's been revealed to you from above. And you're Peter, and I'm giving you the keys. What keys? It's my interpretation or understanding that it was the keys of opening the door, you know, to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Peter is doing in Acts chapter 10. So anyway, Peter was kind of reluctant, kind of drug his feet on this early on, but I want you to see where he eventually ended up being. Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, what an incredible passage of Scripture. You know, he's basically saying, well, you used to be, but now you are. You used to be, but now you are. In fact, Paul touches on some of that same kind of thinking um, in Ephesians chapter 2. The last half of Ephesians 2. Just listen, to, and I'm just going to pick some of the selected verses between verse 11 and verse 22, the end of the chapter. Paul said this, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, okay, that would apply to most of us that are in this room. Remember, those of you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Pretty bleak picture. But then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, we're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. You see, see what Paul was saying? It very much is echoing, you know, some of what Peter came to, to realize as being truth. That as Gentiles, we were this way, but now we're this way. It's different now because when we, we embrace Christ and when we step into that relationship with him, then all of a sudden we are among his special people, his chosen people. 
But when did God ever make that decision? When did God decide that? When did he choose us? If this impacts you the way that it did me, this is going to be special. When did God make the decision? Ephesians chapter 1 gives us the answer. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Before the foundation of the world was ever laid, this was a decision that he made. God planned this long, long ago. You weren't forced upon God. God wasn't obligated to accept you. Oh, you're, you're embracing my son Jesus in faith. Okay, you can become part of my family. You know, it wasn't like that. We were, you know, sometimes we talk about how when Jesus went to the cross and he was nailed to the cross and he hung on the cross for a few hours that you'll hear people say, and I've probably said it too, that you were on his mind. And I think a good case can be built for that. But the reality of the matter is, let's go even further back in time before God even spoke the world into existence. You were on God's mind. He chose you. He wanted you to be part of his treasured people. I don't know what you were doing um, on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Um, I do know what I was doing. I was spending a good amount of time in bed. Um, I, I napped probably six hours during the day on those days. I had COVID, and within a couple of days, Colette was going to get COVID. It wasn't really that serious. I mean, we had three days where we didn't feel very well and all, but... Uh, um, but, you know, by the fourth day, uh, fifth day for Colette, you know, she started feeling better. But so here I was laying in bed at home and I was channel surfing. I wasn't going to go anywhere. I was kind of feeling that way where you don't even want to crawl out for anything. And uh, I was channel surfing and Fiddler on the Roof was just starting. Now, I don't know how many of you have watched Fiddler on the Roof. I, uh, you know, I don't have a Depart, uh, um, a collection of, of musicals that I choose what's my favorite. I just, but uh, if I did, Fiddler on the Roof would be at the top of that. It's such an enjoyable movie. It's about a Jewish family going through some rough times. And the first time I watched this, Colette and I did back in the early 80s down in Wichita when we were visiting her grandmother. And so I thought, all right, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to watch this movie. And uh, it was a good movie. And there's this one particular point in time that Tevya, um, he's the dad, the, one of the key characters in the movie, uh, he's having an especially rough day. And he's talking to God. He always does that through the movie. He just stops and he starts talking to God. And this is one of those moments where he's talking to God. And what he has to say 
it's it's just so funny to hear it. But uh, I want you to hear it because there's something I want to say about it. Dear God, did you have to send me news like that today of all days? I know, I know we are the chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? All right. So once in a while, can you choose someone else well the reality is he has he's chosen you he's chosen me to be among his special people his treasured people yeah when we're reading the biblical account it was blood descendants of abraham and that's what god was going to use to bring the messiah into the world but the scripture goes on to say that we even though we may not have any jewish blood in us we are among his chosen, treasured people. And so I'm, I'm going to close the message at this point in time, and we're going to have our time of communion. But I want to encourage you during this time to prayerfully reflect on that. That not only were you on our Lord's mind when he went to the cross, but even before the foundations began to be laid in creation for the existence of this world you were on his mind then he was choosing you to be a part of his special treasured people just reflect on that a little bit and what that means let's pray father i thank you i thank you for your word and how impactful the message is that when we look, when we dig into it, when we start seeing what is referred to as a mystery, but what is revealed to us as being your plan and having been your plan all along. Father, we celebrate. We celebrate that. Father, help us to embrace the calling of being your people. And Lord, I pray through your spirit that we will rise to the occasion to live in such a way that, that uh, our gratitude is expressed in our decisions and in the way that we live, in the way that we treat others day in and day out. May all of that be an extension of our gratitude for the fact that you loved us so much that you would send Jesus to die for us and that you would have us in mind all along as being the reason why you were creating everything to begin with. Thank you, Lord, for your love. And forgive us whenever we take that for granted. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.